Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Biblically and Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Justin Paley. And in today's episode, we're going to continue our deeper dive into the text of the Gospel of Luke. Okay, so in this episode, now that we've covered the first couple of chapters of Luke's Gospel and talked a little bit about Theophilus and just how Luke frames his narrative and and some of the interesting aspects of that. Uh, For the second episode, I wanted to focus more on um, some of the parables and teachings that Luke includes in his gospel that aren't included in Matthew or Mark. Uh, and see if that tells us anything interesting about the text. And then for the final episode, we'll focus on the the crucifixion and resurrection. So in terms of famous passages or or stories, one of the most famous, at least one of the first that come to mind for me, is the Good Samaritan. One of the most well-known biblical stories, at least certainly New Testament stories. And it's at, at first thought, you'd think, one, it's a really, really great parable with a, with a really, really great uh, moving message. But uh, at the same time, given its prominence within Christianity, it's interesting that Luke is the only gospel to actually contain the narrative. Uh, it's in specifically chapter, chapter 10 of Luke's gospel. And that actually makes some sense. And what I mean by that is, and and again, these are very, very broad generalities. Usually, Mark will not have a lot of these more, um, I guess, narrative passages. I mean, it's very patchy. It obviously does have some stories and teachings of Jesus. But uh, compared to Matthew and Luke, it's a lot more crude in its construction and presentation and uh, the story of the, the Good Samaritan is is a very beautiful one, which doesn't mean that it can't be in Mark, obviously. But Mark, in terms of how uh, he structures his narrative, very, very different from, from Luke's, as well as just the uh, narrative and storytelling capabilities of the author. As we discussed in the previous episode, Luke is a, a extremely well-educated person, and so he is... Uh, on uh, another level, so to speak, when when compared to when compared to Mark, but also compared to Matthew, a lot of people think about Matthew as you know, quote unquote, the Jewish gospel in the sense that there's a lot of focus on Judaism. The uh, uh, Matthew, as an author, portrays a, a deep understanding of Judaism and Jewish rituals and theology in a way that Luke does not which is why a lot of people think that Luke was a, a, a Gentile. And so the Good Samaritan, the the message of the Good Samaritan being generally that, you know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter whether somebody is Jewish or exactly what their, their beliefs are, but if they, if they do the right thing, you know, who, who's your real neighbor? Um, who who is the person that that is righteous in in the sight of God, and it's the the one that does help the person who's struggling and that needs help, and that even a Samaritan, somebody that is not Jewish or maybe traditionally thought of as a a godly person, um, can do God's work or can carry out the the essence of what 
at least the author of Luke sees as central to Jesus' message, which is um, do unto others what you would want them to, to do unto you and to, to be a good neighbor and, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the fact that the Good Samaritan does have a, a non-Jew as its, its protagonist, so to speak, uh, makes sense that that type of story would be the, the only one uh, or, or one that's only found in the Gospel of Luke, which does have a lot of those Gentile components to it. So that's a, a first interesting thing. The other that is also uh, very, very well known, maybe not as quite well known as the Good Samaritan, is the prodigal son. Um, so the prodigal son, you know, essentially this, this son of this rich man um, takes his inheritance, goes and squanders it, and then uh, essentially comes back begging for forgiveness and uh, essentially confessing what he's done. The father welcomes him back. And the the second son, who uh, actually, you know, stayed with his father, worked the land, was very responsible, um, gets very offended that his brother, who just squandered all these things, uh, all this money on, on all these very questionable things, is getting this grand reception, and the father kills the fattened calf for him and throws a celebration, and the the other son is basically you know why why are you throwing all this this huge party for this son of yours that has uh, squandered your your money and, and behaved terribly and essentially the moral of the story being you know well the the one sinner who comes back and repents you know there's going to be celebration in in heaven for that one person that that comes and repents and for the ninety nine that that didn't need to to come back and repent. Um, so, uh, uh, at least for me personally, I'm sure that scholarship out there has a, a lot to say about the character of the story and, and why it might only be found in Luke. But um, I found it a little uh, somewhat interesting, given the prominence of the story and how well known it is, that it's actually only uh, told in Luke. And then the third story that I want to highlight is the, the rich man and Lazarus, which maybe isn't quite as well known as the other two stories, but um, is, is a fairly well-known story, at least from, from my experience. Uh, and so essentially this rich man um, goes and uh, sees this, this poor man at, at, at begging at a, at a gate of some sort, and essentially the, the poor man dies, and so does the rich man, and the rich man sees the, the beggar um, in, in heaven, um, essentially, you know, hanging out with, with Moses and, and Abraham and, and all of the, 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 the great figures from, um, from the Hebrew Bible, and the rich man is is begging Lazarus to that that's the man's name is begging him to 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 come down and, and basically touch the the tip of his tongue because the rich man is suffering, and I don't want to use the word hell because that that is imposing modern terminology on them, but um, a, a place of suffering in the afterlife, and he's begging Lazarus to to come and just touch the the tip of his his tongue with his finger to just cool and to, to cool his tongue which is on fire and and give some relief to his agony um and and basically the moral of the story is 
Lazarus, he suffered during his earthly life. And so now that he is reaping the riches and benefits in the afterlife, whereas the rich man already got all those benefits during his earthly life. And so now he is suffering in the afterlife as Lazarus did in uh, his, his earthly life. Uh, it's an interesting message there. Um, again, I'm sure scholarship has a lot to say about maybe potential reasons on why Luke included it in, in his gospel or where the story might have come from. But looking at the stories that are unique to Luke's gospel, those are the three that really stuck out to me as um, being the most well-known and pervasive within modern-day uh, Christianity and just general popular culture, especially the, the Good Samaritan. So it's clear that, you know, no matter where Luke got this material from, whether it was his own creation, whether it was just oral tradition that was not included in Mark that Luke had access to, or whether it's a written source that we no longer have, although I think that that is the least likely option, still an option nonetheless. Uh, it's clear that these early Christian authors, and this is something that I've tried to emphasize before, um, it should not be, uh, trying to think of the right way to put this, bracketed off from the, the wider context and wider Greco-Roman world that they were operating in. And more specifically, what I mean by that is not treating them different, differently than we do any other historical author or just the, the way that we approach history for any other era or subject. Oftentimes there's a tendency that because it uh, is something related to the New Testament and thus related to religion and faith, that it, it has a different... Uh, it, it, at least for some people clouds the way that they, they approach things. Uh, and everybody has different opinions on this. A very famous New Testament scholar who's a personal favorite of mine, his name is Bart Ehrman. He's a New Testament scholar who works at uh, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He, one of my favorite things that he always says is that when approaching uh, because he focuses on New Testament, I'm going to say New Testament, but this would go for any um, historical religious subject. But when approaching the New Testament, something like miracles is outside of the judgment of historians. And so when we're judging some of these stories or, or miracles, whatever the case might be, we have to try to be as objective as possible. And regardless of whatever conclusion we come to in terms of um, historical reliability, or uh, just the, the chance that Jesus actually said this, or whatever the case might be, that that is not meant to be a knock on someone's faith or calling the Bible false. It's just that stuff like miracles is outside the purview of an objective academic historian. Uh, and there are a lot of other conservative, more conservative scholars who push back very heavily against that notion and think that we can use historical inquiry to determine the, um, the likelihood of something like the resurrection. But people like Bart Ehrman, and I would certainly include myself in, in that camp, uh, think that that is, one, not good history, and two, um, just not 
it's it's not an objective framework from which to work from and produce fruitful results and produce a, a more holistic understanding. Uh, that little rant aside now, returning to, to the Good Samaritan and the other stories unique in, in Luke. Um, because of the length of Luke's gospel, I, I wanted to highlight these three stories again, as I said, because of their prominence, but also because I, I think it really helps hammer home the point that I had begun on before going into that little aside rant that uh, this is a great example of just the, 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 the talent and the creativeness of early Christian authors. And this is not something that's unique to early Christian authors or to Luke. It is something that was a part of the educated literary landscape of the Greco-Roman world of the first century and just the ancient world in general. Sometimes we have these antiquated notions that, you know, uh, they, the ancients were stupid or that because they lacked a lot of the information that we have access to today, that their their approach to things or their conclusions or understandings um, need to be written off, just be off of that sheer fact alone. And at least in my opinion, I think that that is a very misguided way to look at things. And I think it also clouds our ability to understand and evaluate the, especially from a historical perspective, the New Testament. There's been some really interesting work recently uh, around essentially exploring the the commonalities between the, the story of Jesus and other um, Greco-Roman heroes or gods. Uh, and there's a lot of really interesting similarities, and I'm going to do a podcast episode on this at some point in the near future because I found it absolutely fascinating, and it was not something that I was exposed to in a ton of detail in, in an academic setting. Um, but I I think, at least from the outside, it seems to be gaining in more prominence, and I think there's a lot of interesting points there, and so I want to devote a whole episode to it. But it's another step in what I would judge the right direction in the sense of not isolating early Christian authors from their environment. And so when we're thinking about how these gospel texts came about, and we touched on this in the series from season one on just the gospel sources and the historical context that may have given rise to these to these gospels, that we need to, to look at it not as people who are um, like religious zealots, you know, writing down stories to evangelize and convert people, though that is certainly an aspect but we need to look at them as literary producers in their own right. So certainly when it comes to something like Mark, it's a little bit harder to, to do that because um, one, some of Mark's sources are, are kind of up in the air, whereas at least for Matthew and Luke, we can, without any question, say that they used Mark as a major source in composing their respective Gospels. And so it's interesting to compare the, uh, all three Gospels to see where 
Matthew uh, and Luke have taken creative license uh, in terms of changing or adapting Mark's stories and then also coming up with their own material or making use of their own material that is not found in um, other Gospels. So it's clear that when we're thinking about the Gospels, and in this case, the Gospel of Luke, that they were not, they were not slaves to their sources. And they didn't treat their source material in this very wooden manner, as I touched on at the end of last episode, with those that want to um, go out of their way to try to harmonize everything in the Gospels. Uh, and so that is all to say that, and I, I thought about this a lot, and I go back and forth on how exactly to frame it, because I don't really know what the right way is. Um, but essentially what I'm trying to get across is, I think in the modern day, the, the text of the New Testament to the average person and also to many academics is so entrenched with the religious aspect that it has really made it hard to actually just look at them at them being the the authors of the new testament as um objective creative writers in their own respect in the same way that we might look at for example you know dante or edgar Allan poe or um, or Homer, these um, these literary giants in their own right, who when we when we evaluate their texts, you know, we might look at symbolism. We try to um, understand the message of the story, poem, whatever the case might be. But at the end of the day, when talking about the author, we treat them as sort of individual literary contributors to just the wider, I guess, historical literary landscape, um, and and seeing it as an important and and impactful contribution to that. Whereas we don't think about it in in that same way when talking about something like the Gospel of Luke. And so I think it's really important to recognize and own up to that fact and try to mitigate that as much as possible. And I think a, a really good step in that direction is um, appreciating the differences between all of the Gospels and looking at the uh, creative license that Luke has employed in, in crafting his Gospel. And although we can never know for sure, trying to better understand what was driving Luke and how ancient authors, regardless of what subject they were writing on, how they approached literary creativity and just how historical narrative was was thought of in, in the wider literary world of the New Testament as a way of actually better understanding the New Testament itself. So the last thing that I want to touch on in this episode is more of a historical thought experiment of sorts to try to tie all of this to, together in terms of actually situating the Gospel of Luke and its author within the, the wider historical context and try to think about how this the logistics of this composition and the circulation of the, the Gospel of Luke might have actually 
worked and what that might tell us about the creative license that Luke employed in actually crafting the, the narrative itself. So we've touched on some of these points in previous episodes, so um, some of this will be re rehashing, but uh, I think it's an important to set the scene. So in the, the ancient world, literacy rates were extremely low extremely low, most likely somewhere in between 5 and 15%. It's hard to know exactly where Luke's community was located or like what his, the, the geographic distribution of his targeted audience, if that's even the right word to use, would be. So it's hard to, to be more precise. It could be lower, could be higher, but regardless of what it is, much, much lower than, uh, than current literacy rates. <clears throat> um, the, the second thing is relating back to the, the first part of Luke's gospel, where he clearly says that he, or, or that, that first section there with Theophilus, um, where Luke is talking about you know, I've, I've surveyed all the the facts and I, and I wanted to write all of this down so that you would know the truth of everything that you've been taught and everything that you heard. So when it comes to the, the literacy rates and its relation to that passage, we shouldn't think of the Gospel of Luke as sort of like a modern printed book in the sense that there's this group of, I don't know, let's say a hundred Christians in some particular city in that there would be a, a printed and bound copy of the Gospel of Luke for, for, every, uh, for every one of those Christians that they could take home for them and their, their family and, and read and, and discuss it together. That is not at all how it would have worked. Um, mo the vast majority of the early Christians would have been exposed to this material through actually hearing it read out loud to them. And given how long the Gospel of Luke is, and we should also keep in mind that it's not just the Gospel of Luke, it's Luke-Acts, so um, they, they would have essentially uh, formed one composition that would have been thought of as, as one and the same, so they wouldn't necessarily have separated what we today call Luke from Acts. Uh, but nonetheless, they wouldn't have heard the Gospel of Luke read cover to cover in, in the way that we think about it. It would have been much more episodic. So that's an interesting point that I don't hear touched on that much, because even when reading the Gospel of Luke, which, um, as we've already discussed, in terms of its sophistication and its just narrative flow is at a, a much higher level compared to something like the Gospel of Mark, it could still feel kind of disjointed, like it's a, it's a copy and paste job in some places, and there doesn't seem to necessarily be a logical flow in the way that we think about literary flow today. And that is very much in... Uh, in step with other writings of the time. So Luke does not necessarily stand out in that respect. But um, it, it should also be noted that because most of these early Christians were not hearing it read cover to cover, and that the author of the Gospel, Luke, obviously would have been aware of this, 
it was more emphasis on a particular episode. So example, you know, somebody might read out at a, at a gathering, the, the Good Samaritan and another passage, you know, similar to church services today, where there's a, a selected passages that, that are the focus of the service. It would have um, been something similar in ancient times, just because you can't sit there and actually read the entire gospel of, of Luke in, in one sitting. I mean, even today, most people don't do that. So when Luke is thinking about his target audience, assuming that this Theophilus is not just one single person that Luke is writing for, and that he assumes he's going to be the only person to read it, which doesn't seem very probable, it's much more likely that Luke knows, given the fact that he is aware of other Gospels and other stories, and those have circulated to the point where Luke is aware of them, and, and other people have have heard about them, as he indicates in that passage with Theophilus, you know, the things that he's been taught and has heard. Uh, it's clear that there's um, a cultural currency amongst early Christians in, in regards to these, these stories and Gospels, and that they do have a wider circulation. So even if Theophilus is a single individual, uh, it's probable that the author of, of Luke would have envisioned a wider audience. But when we think about the 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 makeup of of Luke as text, um, we should always keep in mind that Luke wasn't writing it to flow in one single narrative. It was much more episodic. Uh, and while again, compared to Mark, Luke does a better job on actually tying things together, and some of the transitions are less choppy and 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 make more logical sense. Uh, it's still, at least to our modern standards, um, is quite choppy and doesn't always flow uh, uh, very smoothly. But we shouldn't try. We shouldn't chalk that up to a lack of creative or, or artistic or writing ability on the the author of Luke. But rather, again, we need to understand it within the larger literary context of the Greco-Roman world, and within that context. Uh, the structure of the narrative um, is is much more, as I said, in step with what we would expect. So it's not due to a lack of creativity or a lack of skill, whatever word we want to use, as much as it is just an indication of the wider Greco-Roman practices and, and expectations of, of what a narrative is. And the Gospels, another thing that complicates all of this is that the Gospel genre is, is somewhat unique. Um, they're, they're, and this is where some of the conversation gets a little bit more complicated because of how Luke frames his, his Gospel and just the, the amount of education that he must have had. Luke does, in many ways, try to mirror the um, standard conventional historical writing that you find in some well-known um, uh, Greco-Roman historians, um, somebody like Tacitus, or um, uh, you know, take your pick uh, of any of those um, more well-known historical writers, but again, I shouldn't have to rehash the point that writing historical narrative in the Greco-Roman world is not what we think about historical narrative or, or writing a, a 
historical recounting of something. They were much less focused on the exact, you know, what exactly happened, what exactly was said, as they were just capturing more of the larger themes and larger consequences and weaving that into more of a narrative. And so when looking at the Gospels, Luke's does take on some of that historical narrative to it, but it's also infused with the unique contributions of the gospel genre, uh, as well as just Luke's artistic and creative abilities. So there was, there was not a blueprint that some of these authors could follow. And a good uh, comparison point for this would be the letters of Paul. So Paul, if you compare any of his letters, some more so than others, but to the standard Greco-Roman letter of the time, you will see some similarities. You'll see some similarities in the letter opening, the letter body, the letter closing, just how generally things are structured. But there are a lot of things about Paul's letters that are very, very unique uh, and that um, show that Paul was at the same time following some standard conventions but also uh, infusing his own creativity into the letters that he was crafting. And that eventually came to form this unique Christian letter type that we see reflected in non-Pauline letters, such as First and Second Peter, or the letter of James, or uh, even non-canonical early Christian letters. So... Something similar is happening here with the Gospels, where you do obviously have examples of historical narrative. And why I'm saying historical narrative and not biography is because that is a very, very foreign concept. And I think that there, that's a pretty bloated word, biography. But if we do want to use it, I mean, the Gospels are, in a way, ancient biographies of Jesus. But we just need to understand that by saying ancient biography we're really saying ancient historical narrative in the sense that, again, they're not as focused on presenting everything exactly 100% accurately, exactly as it happened, and really, really drilling down into all the, the nitty-gritty details. So th this is all to say that when we when we try to evaluate and look at something like the Gospel of Luke or any other New Testament or early Christian text, we we are sort of engaging in a balancing act, where when we read a story, for example, like the Good Samaritan, there's a couple of things that we need to take into account apart from the religious significance. So if we like remove, let's say that the the, the story of the Good Samaritan was not in the Gospel of Luke and it was in a non-Christian text. Now, that's the way that we need to think about it if we're going to try to have an objective approach here. So while it's a lovely story, has a great message, again, not found in Mark and Matthew. And so either Luke came up with it or he got it from another source. It's impossible for us to know. But it does uh, follow a major theme of Luke's gospel, which we mentioned earlier, which is this more Gentile focused narrative where Luke gives a voice to more Gentile characters. It's clear that his background is not thoroughly Jewish, at least compared to somebody like the, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. 
and that's reflected in the the stories that Luke includes in his gospel. So I'm inclined to think that Luke came up with this story, at least in, in, in large part. And so his decision to include it in the, the narrative, we have to take seriously, and we can't just look at it from a religious context, because that's not going to allow us to understand the Gospel of Luke at a deeper historical level, at least. Obviously, if we focus on it as a, as a religious story and the, the morals that we can take from it, obviously there's a ton of value there. But again, if we're not going to prioritize this just because it's in the New Testament or because it's related to Christianity, a story like the Good Samaritan could theoretically be found in a lot of religious and even non-religious texts. Um, and so the the uniqueness of the, the moral behind the story isn't really there if we separate it from its Christian context, because in the Christian context, it is quite unique that we have a Samaritan um, uh, rather than a, a fellow believer or, or a, a Jewish individual who is practicing these acts. Uh, and so in that sense, it is a bit unique, but in <clears throat> the wider scheme of, of, of things, it's, uh, it, it loses its uniqueness a little bit. But nonetheless, um, we, we need to approach it, I guess, with a more flexible framework, where we don't want to just reduce it to a, a religious moral story, but we also don't want to completely separated from that because the fact that Luke does include it in his gospel is quite unique. So it's a bit of a balancing act, but if we are trying to approach it from an objective point of view, we obviously want to put more stress on the the historical part of it rather than the, the religious and moral aspect. But um, you know, neither side should be completely ignored because they both offer um, something to learn from and something to add to the wider perspective that we might take away from, from the Gospel of Luke. So I knew going into this that this was going to be a bit of a rambly episode just because we only focus on the first couple of chapters of, of Luke on the first episode, and then the third episode that I'm planning is really going to focus on just the last couple of chapters, and so you basically have almost, you know, 15 to 20 chapters in the middle there with just a ton of content, um, and I wasn't really sure what direction I wanted to go, so... Um, I ended up just wanting to touch on a couple of those major stories that I think most listeners would be familiar with and can um, relate to in some way, shape, or form, uh, and try to tie that into some of the wider themes that we focused on both in um, uh, the last episode, but also in many of the episodes of this podcast. So I, I in sum... I think it's important when we're reading these stories to not not let us get carried away in extremes where we don't want to just, if we're approaching it from a historical point of view now, not if we're looking at it just devotionally or as a believer. But if we want to try to marry those two sides and take a more balanced approach, we both need to consider 
the uniqueness of this text within the Judeo-Christian religious context of the first early second century in which it emerged. But we also, in larger part, need to situate it within the larger Greco-Roman literary and historical context uh, on which it's emerging. And not, again, letting letting one of those considerations completely overtake the other, but letting them complement one another in, in a way that will give us a more objective and holistic understanding. So I hope that uh, at least some of this was, was interesting and edifying, and I'm looking forward to diving deeper into the crucifixion and resurrection narrative of Luke, because there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. So looking forward to diving deeper into that in the last episode of this series.